you got your Bibles, will you open up with me 2 Peter chapter 1? We're going to be in verses 12 to the end of the chapter this morning. Hear God's word with me, starting in verse 12 uh, with me in second. Uh, sorry, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through the end of the text. So therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that, that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from the God the Father, the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we, we heard this very voice born from heaven, for we with, were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." If you're familiar with the actor Rain, Rain Wilson, you understand that he's accumulated quite a fanfare over the ages. After all, he plays the, one of the, the, the public's kind of favorite character in the show The Office. He plays Dwight. And I've, even though I've never seen that show The Office, forgive me for that, I am a fan of memoirs. That's why I found it so interesting to watch this interview. Rain Wilson just recently did a talking about his new book, Kind of Soul Boom. And in this book, he describes his kind of faith journey. And what I so found fascinating about this man is he kind of, he goes, uh, he ascribes to this religion called the Baha'i religion. And if you're familiar with this, you understand this is just a kind of a hodgepodge of grabbing all the world religions and kind of making them all one. But what I saw so fascinating, though, was Rain Wilson described his affection towards Jesus Christ. He says he loves Jesus, that he's, he, he, he uh, 100% believes that, that Jesus in his lifetime was the only way to the Father, but yet in the very next sentence, he says he believes that Muhammad was the only way to the Father in Muhammad's lifetime, and uh, Baha Halal is the new incarnation of light. And as you're listening to this, you see, here's this man who, yes, is grabbing all these world religions and then kind of sprinkling his own kind of beliefs on top of it. Kind of all saying that we're all united, headed in the same way. And as you're listening to him speak of, of what he believes, you realize this is a very common kind of belief in our day, in our culture. Not that all of us are of the Baha'i Baha faith in our culture, but there is this idea that says all these religions of the world are kind of headed in the same direction, so it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you have some sense of spirituality, you all end up in the same place at the end. And then I began to think, I was like, 
Why is this so prevalent in our culture? I think there's kind of two main reasons why we kind of just kind of grab all the religions, kind of believe they're all headed in the same direction. I think the first reason is it kind of gets rid of this final judgment. You ask Rain Wilson if he believes in a final judgment, he says, no, I don't believe in a hell or a heaven. And if they're all headed in the same direction, it makes sense. You, you can't have a final judgment if everybody is in the right path. So it's one way to kind of not be able to have to adhere to, to, to God's kind of commands, but we're all just kind of on this pathway and we'll be good in the end. The other idea, I think, is why this is becoming so prevalent is the world longs for unity, but a unity that comes at no cost. There's this idea that we long to be headed in the same direction, but notice there's no un- uniformity of thought, no uniformity of action within these religions, So it's really not a unity at all. It's a false unity. It's a facade. But we we long to be united, but we don't want to be united at a cost. We don't want to conform to anything. So yes, we kind of believe in this idea of kind of grabbing all these religions and believing everybody is unified and headed in the same direction. But it doesn't make sense to me. Because as you're looking at these world religions, they have contradictory truths. One says that Jesus is the Son of God. The others say He is not, He's just a prophet. So how can we have one religion be united that's saying He is the Son of God and other religions saying He's not the Son of God and yet be united, headed in the same direction? It doesn't make sense to me. But yet, I'm very aware that this belief hasn't just started in our culture, but this goes back a long time even into Peter's day. We understand this kind of Grabbing all these religions was very popular in Peter's day. The Romans had hundreds and hundreds of gods. So their problem was not Christians just picking up another god saying, yes, Jesus is Lord. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was the, with the inclusive claims of Christianity saying, you only worship Jesus and you can't worship the other gods. So yes, there was this false religion, these false teachers that were kind of making their way into the churches that Peter is trying to write to. We're not really sure of all what they believed, but there was this syncretism. There was this idea of grabbing all these religions. And what we notice is they too came to the conclusion there is no final judgment. So these false teachers were going into these churches and saying there's no false, there, there, there is no second uh, uh, coming of Jesus. He's, he's not coming back, which means there is no final judgment. So therefore, you should just be able to live the way you want to live. And therefore, these churches were partaking in a whole bunch of different sins and, and partaking in, in, in the things of the world. So here, Peter is watching his churches get off course But notice this morning how he draws them back. He first draws them back with the command to remember, to recall what he taught them all about Jesus in the first place. In fact, notice what he says in verse there, in verse 12 through 15. He says, therefore, I intend always to catch it, to remind you of these qualities, that though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He's saying, hey, we preach this gospel to you. You have all these truths, so just, you just need to remember what we taught you about Jesus. Verse 13, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I will make every effort so that my departure 
you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's watching his, his church kind of sway, kind of drift away from the truth, and he says, I'm making it my life's mission. I only got a short time left, and in this short time, I need you to recall, to remember, to remind yourselves of what I taught you. In fact, he says, this is the very purpose I'm writing to you, is to, to remind you of the truth of the gospel, to remind you that, yes, I was an eyewitness to this account, that, yes, this gospel is not a made-up myth, but it is true. He says, recall, remember, remind yourself of how true of a message this gospel is. Remind yourself of what Jesus said himself about himself. That he was not just one of many prophets, he was the only son of God. And it's important for us to remind ourselves. You see this throughout the scriptures, how often man mankind seems to forget things. You watch it throughout the Old Testament, how, many, how easy it was for Israel to kind of drift away from their true faith, and so God kind of established these, these things of reminding them. And yet he does it here. Peter says, I need you constantly to look back, to, to see where you are, to see how you drift, to realign yourself with biblical orthodoxy so you don't find yourself in left field. But here was a church that was drifting. So he says, recall, remember, remind yourself. And that's a good word for us, right? We have a tendency to find ourselves drifting. You don't watch yourself, you'll find yourself drifting, and, and all of a sudden, you're not believing in, in biblical orthodoxy again. So he says, you, you need to remind yourself. And, and the question we ask is, why is it so easy for us to drift apart from the truth? Well, there's a whole slew of different reasons why we drift, but live, let me give you just one that I believe was taking place with the churches that he was writing to. There's been some debate on how this took place. Here was a church that was drifting. Not only were they drifting away from biblical orthodoxy, but they were drifting away from Christian living. They were partaking in a whole bunch of sins. So the debate goes like this. Which one happened first? What was it the teaching? These false teachers came into the church and all of a sudden they were saying, hey, there is no final judgment. So therefore, this church didn't really fear any judgment coming, so therefore they took part in sin. Some people believe that's the order it went. It, false teaching came in first, there's no final judgment, nobody was scared of a final judgment, they partook in sin. The other way says, here was a group of individuals, the church began to want to live a sinful lifestyle, and after they're living a sinful lifestyle, now they adjust the scriptures to be able to fit their lifestyle. So here they were partaking in sin. Well, we, we don't want to feel any guilt, so we'll just say there is no final judgment. We really don't know the order, but I want to suggest to you that it was the latter. It was D.A. Carson who said this. He says every time he finds somebody who's struggling with Christ's authority in their life or struggling with the Bible's authority over them, he wants to ask them, them one question, who are you sleeping with? In other words, what he's getting at He's saying, if you, if you show me a person who is drifted away from biblical orthodoxy, you pop open the hood of their life and you will see somebody who is living a sinful lifestyle. He's saying what's taking place is, is a whole culture of people who, who now are adjusting the scriptures 
to fit their lifestyle rather than having their lifestyle come under the authority of the Holy Scriptures. And I've seen this time and time again. Again, you show me somebody who has kind of drifted away from biblical orthodoxy along the way, and I will show you, you pop up the hood of their life, and you will see their lifestyle who's marked by sin, or a close friend, or a family member whose lifestyle is marked by sin as well. And the reason I mention a close family member or a friend is what we see a lot of times is somebody having empathy for their sinful lifestyle, a friend or a family member, and all of a sudden they change their biblical definition of marriage, a biblical definition of gender identity to kind of fit their friend or their, their, their family member's lifestyle. It happens so quickly. There's this sense of, of empathy because of what you're seeing your friend live. So what you're doing is you're not going to adjust their lifestyle to fit the Holy Scriptures, but you're going to adjust this book to fit your lifestyle. And I believe this is what's taking place with the church that Peter is writing to. And Peter says, no, you need to recall what the Holy Scriptures say. You, you need to understand who Jesus is. And as you understand who Jesus is, then you'll see that this book is actually true and you'll come under it. Do you see where he's trying to lead his church? He's trying to prove in this moment the truth that Jesus is not just one of many prophets. This idea of syncretism doesn't work. And then he's trying to prove that if, if Jesus is the king of, king, king of kings, then that changes everything everything. And because it changes everything, now my life, no matter how difficult it is, I must now come under the authority of what God's Word says. So first, he begins the proof, the truth of his eyewitness account. He says, you, you want to see that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Well, all you need to know is I saw it for myself. In fact, notice what he says in the next couple of verses with me in verses 16 to 18. He said, we, we, we did not follow cleverly devised myths that when we made known to you, as the, uh, to you through the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on this holy mountain. And as you're listening to, to Peter's words, you, you, you're almost amazed. Because what is Peter saying? He's saying Christianity... Its truth is, is based off of a historical eyewitness account, which then therefore rises and falls on the truth of this eyewitness account. Peter says we saw it all. We're the ones who heard Jesus. We, we saw Jesus. We heard God the Father's voice on that holy mountain. where We were eyewitness account to this. And, and what he's saying really is Christianity is based on the historical evidence of eyewitness account. And if you, and if you disprove their eyewitness account, if you can prove that Jesus never lived, then Christianity comes down in this crashing shambles. And think about that. Think about the reality of what he's actually saying. That Jesus Christ had to be born at a certain place in history, had to live in a certain region of history, and if you can disprove those things, that Christianity shambles, we shouldn't believe them. 
Right? Is that not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? That, that if Jesus not only didn't live, but, but we actually have to prove the resurrection, and not just any resurrection, he had to come in bodily form. Couldn't just be this mystical idea. He couldn't just kind of raise spiritually. No, he had to physically raise from the grave or else we're still stuck in our sin. And think about that. That is unique. What, what other world religion falls or rises on the historical eyewitness account of one person? Buddhism? Not so. I mean, you, 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 you look at Buddha. You, if he never lived, guess what? Buddhism still exists. Hinduism believes in hundreds of gods. You just get rid of one of those gods, the whole thing still exists. Islam. Even though Muhammad is this high and, and important prophet, you ask that, uh, 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 somebody who, who, who is of the Islam faith, that you ask them, hey, could you, could you have a different prophet? They, they might kind of question the, the question, but at the end of the, 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 kind of the question, they'll say, yes, God is sovereign over all things. He could have picked a different prophet to kind of reveal his final truth. Not so with Christianity. You rid yourself of Jesus. You disprove that he was born in Galilee, born of a virgin, lived a, a certain life of, of doing miraculous signs and wonders. If you disprove his death, disprove the fact that he rose a bodily from the grave, Christianity, if you disprove any of those things, this whole thing comes crumbling down. But what is Peter saying? He's saying it's true. Because there's many people who saw him. This historical evidence points that, yes, here was this man named Jesus who was born of a virgin, living in Galilee, and yes, he lived this life saying, signs and wonders, that is not debated. But yet then he came, and he died upon the cross and rose again. You've seen what Peter is trying to get to. Yes, this has been seen. This is true. Christianity is different. Christianity's truth is dependent on the historical accuracy of Jesus who lived at a certain time in history in a certain city of the world. And Peter says it's all true. It's all true. It's all true. And how does he actually prove it? It's interesting what he points to. He points to that time in which he was on this mountain and there on that mountain was with him, was Moses and Elijah. And there, all of a sudden, Jesus transfigures upon himself, and, and we see his Jesus' deity. So he's talking to Matthew chapter 17, in that time in which the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured, and we see his deity. And the question we ask is, out of all the things Peter could have said, why does he pick this event to point to the historical accuracy of Jesus? Well, remember what these false teachers were saying. They were saying that there is no second coming, Jesus isn't coming back. There was no final judgment because Jesus isn't coming back. But yet, G Peter points to the reality of here was a time in which Jesus transfigured among us, in which we saw his pre-incarnate state, and not only that, but the transfiguration points to the future. Where Jesus' humanity falls to the ground and we see his deity in its fullness. And he says, if this happened on this mountain, then sure enough, it's going to happen again. In fact, I think there's another reason why he points it. 
Not only does the transfiguration point to Jesus' second coming as we see his full deity, but I think it also points to the singular nature of who Jesus is. Because remember, Peter learned an important lesson through this Mount of Transfiguration. Here he was, he's seen Moses and Elijah and he's seen Jesus, and what is the question Peter asked? Peter asked, should I build a tent for all three? And it sounds great on paper, but in reality, that was the worst thing he could have done. And the reason we know it, because as the text says, as he's still speaking, asking this question, a voice booms from heaven and interrupts him. God speaks, he says, this, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. And the rest of the Matthew text says, and you listen to him. And immediately as they hear that voice, Peter, James, and John, they fall to the ground, and when they look up, there's only one person standing in front of them, and it's the Son of God, Jesus. God is saying there's something different about this man. He's not just one of many prophets. He's not the same of Moses. He's not the same of Elijah. You listen to him. There's a uniqueness about Jesus in Christianity. He's not just some moral man. He is the son of God. He is the king of kings. And because of that, that changes everything. In fact, we understand that there only can be one. Because what the Bible describes is you and I have this sin problem. And if we have this sin problem, there's the penalty of that is death. So therefore, if we ever want to enter eternal life, what do we need? We need somebody to pay that penalty on our behalf. And who is the one person who chose to die on our behalf? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to stand in your place and be your substitute. Muhammad wasn't our substitute. Buddha wasn't our substitute. There was one, Jesus. And as we look at that substitute, he came to die upon the cross And as he died upon the cross, we need him to bodily raise in bodily form. Why do we need that? Because it's a testament that we've been forgiven. If Jesus is still in the grave, if his body is still there, that means God is still punishing him. And it wasn't enough. But the reality that he rose in bodily form and is seated at the right hand of the Father means that the penalty was enough. He was our substitute. And God the Father has now poured out his grace upon us. There's only one. There's only one. And Peter is trying to say it's Jesus. So he's trying to correct his church, this drifting into this idea of syncretism, this grabbing all these world religions and kind of taking all some of the parts and saying, yes, we can worship whatever we want. And not only that, but they were saying there, there is no difference, there is no change. I don't need to change my life after I come to Jesus. And Peter's saying, you, you don't understand. Just remind yourself of who Jesus is. That he is the one who said he is the only way to the Father. He's the one who said he was going to be pierced for your transgressions. He says, remind yourself of that reality and it changes everything. The man who came to die for me, therefore I should give my life to him. And therefore continually grow in our faith is what this whole book is all about. 
So first he says, hey, you need to understand this historical accuracy that it, that it all comes down to eyewitness accounts, but it's not just eyewitness accounts that proves the veracity of the truth of the gospel. But it also comes down to the reality of prophecy, as he points us to at the end of this passage. He says, not only can you depend on the truth of, of what this gospel message is about, because you remind yourself of who Jesus is, that 500 people saw him after he rose from the, from the grave. But now he points us to prophecy, verses 19 to 21. Notice what he says here. He says, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns, which points to Christ's second coming, the eschaton, and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a kind of pointing to revelation as Jesus is, the, the comes back. Knowing this first of all, that the, no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice what Peter is saying there. He's saying this prophetic word is confirmed by Jesus' life. More fully confirmed. And he's, what he's not saying is it just becomes more truthful. But what he is saying is because the Old Testament prophecies are pointing forward. They're pointing to Jesus. They're prophesying about Jesus, when he's going to come and how he's going to come. And, and because it all came true, it confirms even further the truth of the Old Testament prophecy. Be, because we have Jesus... You can trust these Old Testament prophecies. He almost goes back from looking to what it proves to now confirming the truth that it already was there. You kind of see the logic of where he's going there. But he's saying because all these prophecies are coming true, that you can trust it. Because we're looking now from, from Jesus' life looking back, which proves the truth of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament predicted Jesus would come and be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and that takes place... And not only that, but they would confirm all these other things. Therefore, we can trust them because they did come true. In fact, just look at the prophecies we see. Think of all the prophecies speaking of Jesus. And think, what are the odds that one man would fulfill them all? That Jesus would be born in the line of Judah. That Jesus would be a descendant of David. That Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, born of a virgin. And not only that, but Zechariah would say that he would come in riding a donkey into Jerusalem, as he did. And not only that, Isaiah 53 would say that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Not only that, Psalm 22 speaks to the idea of, of Jesus actually being his pierced, his hands and his feet, before even crucifixion was evented. In fact, you look at all of these, scholars would say that there's 48 Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to Jesus. And all 48 came true. They all came true. And the question you should ask is, what are the odds of one man fulfilling all 48 prophecies? Which means, again, he's not just one of, of many prophets. He's special. He's unique. He claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, a mathematician and a scientist... Dr. Peter Stoner came up with, the, had his students kind of develop what, what, what would be the chances of one man fulfilling all 48 prophecies. He had his students go to bat about this and, and they tried to come up with an answer and, and the number was so large so they stopped at 1 to 8 at first. 
What are the chances of not just 48, but one man just fulfilling eight prophecies written centuries before he came? They came up with this number, that it was going to be one and one chance times 10 to the 17th power, just for eight prophecies. That means 10 with 17 zeros. That number means nothing to us. So this man came up with the analogy to kind of give us kind of a word picture of Jesus fulfilling just one of, of or just filling eight of, of the prophecies and, and being one man to fulfill them all. He said, you take a, 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 one of those 50 cent pieces, one of those silver coins, and he says, you, you throw them all out upon Texas until it's two feet deep with these silver coins covering the entirety of Texas. You mark just one, random one, Two feet deep, all of Texas, you blindfold a man and you go say, go pick one of those coins, and he has to pick that one coin two feet deep covering all of Texas. What are the chances of that happening? That's the chances of Jesus. He did it, fulfilling just eight of the 48. And then to kind of wrap our minds, this is even harder, to wrap our minds, what, what are the chances of Jesus filling all 48, which he did, he says, now it's 1 times 10 to the 157th power. So to kind of wrap your mind around that number, 10 to the 157th power, he says, you, you, you can't use something as big as a silver piece. You have to use something as small as electron. And, but, but electrons are so small that to just get enough electrons in one place for 10 to the 15th power, all those electrons lined up, 1 times 10 to the 15th power, you only get an inch. And to count all of those, just to kind of put this into perspective, to count all those electrons in just an inch, to count them, counting 250 of them per minute, it would take you 18 million years to count all those electrons. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all the electrons, not enough even in our galaxy to come up with that number of 10 to 157 power. You need multiple galaxies. And just to see the, the length of the galaxies, he gives us this number. I know there's a lot of numbers here, but just to kind of see just the length of our galaxy, he would say you would take all the people living on this world, and they would have to have a library of 67,000 books, each person having a library of 67,000 books. And then you take each letter, each letter in every one of those books with all the people, and you line them up. You start with the. If the first word's the, you do T for every mile of the galaxy. And then the next one, the next mile of the galaxy, you end up with H. That's how big our galaxy is, 67 books with all these people. Lined up one word, one word, one word. There's more electrons. Multiple galaxies. That's not even get to our galaxy. So the chances of one man fulfilling 48 different prophecies is one in all these multiple galaxies of electrons that are so small, you can't even see them, just have an inch, and, and then you, that's just 10 to the 15th power. Are you getting the, how crazy this truly is? <laughs> to pick one of those random electrons and to have that one person in all of the, the, the length of the galaxy and to find that certain one? This is who Jesus is. 
This is who Jesus is. He fulfilled them all. The Old Testament pointing to this, this one man named Jesus to come to live on, on, at a certain time, point of history. He had no control of. But yet he's the son of God. That's your king. That's the truth of this book. Eyewitness accounts fulfilling all the prophecies, pointing to one man, his name is Jesus, who is the king of kings. Peter says, you have no reason to doubt this book. You have no reason to drift away from it. Because this book is true. And because it's true, it changes everything. I can't keep living the same way I did before Christ. But because I see this man who chose to die in my place, I'm going to now give my everything to him and continually grow in my faith so I continually know him more and more each and every day. So hopefully when you walk away from this place this morning, that you would leave understanding that what you believe in Jesus Christ is more true than what true can be. You don't have to question. And because that is a reality, Peter's saying he's coming back soon. So therefore, we should live like he is coming back soon. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Peter made it his, his mission to remind us, to get us to recall the unique, unique nature of who Jesus is. There's only one Son of God, and you sent him to this earth to be able to come to die in our place and for our sins so that we could be forgiven and live with eternity for you. I'm thankful that we have the message that while we were still sinners, still headed in the opposite direction of you, you still sent your Son and he died for us Why we were headed in the wrong direction. But the great news is that if we simply repent and we simply confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us of all our unrighteousness. But we know that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God, in this last song, we want to lift up the Son. We want to worship him. We, we, want, we, we want our people to be caught up in who he is. Because all glory shines down to him. You are the one who said, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom you're well pleased. Listen to him. And today we want to lift him up in song. We're thankful. We're thankful for the great news of the gospel. We're thankful for the truth of the scriptures. We're thankful that you sent your son on our behalf. Empower your church. Be with your church. Encourage your church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.